Well, it's a, a great pleasure to begin with this panel. As you see, um, we have before you three Catholic academics. And um, I was quite surprised, uh, having agreed to chair the panel, when I discovered they were going to be all three women uh, Catholic academics. I asked Karen Kilby. <laughs> I asked Karen Kilby if this had been the plan. She said, not really. It just looked like happening that way. And so we thought, why not? But, you know, this is almost the first sign of the times, isn't it? That you can't imagine this happening 175 years ago here or in any other place, perhaps. Uh, but it's a sign of the great vitality uh, of um, Catholic thought uh, in this country and more broadly because we have an international panel. I will introduce... Um, each speaker in turn, and they'll have their 20 minutes, and uh, then we'll... Is that right? Can everyone hear me? Yeah, thank you. And then everyone will have sit down at the table, and there'll be questions from you, and we'll move the mic between the speakers, if that's all right. So <clears throat> our first speaker this session, Discerning the Catholic Moment, Reading the Signs of the Times, is a historian, uh, Dr. Lana Harris is um, an uh, Australian by origin and has just taken up a post as a teaching fellow in modern British history at King's College London in the history department. She came there from a um, research post in, in Oxford and she is the historian of uh, Catholicism in modern Britain, although Australian herself. And she has worked extensively in the 19th and 20th century um, on issues of gender, class, ethnicity, sexuality and so on and published a book in 2013, Faith in the Family, A Lived Religious History of English Catholicism. So um, her interests are very broad, and her ongoing research explores the connections between religion and uh, diasporic identities, and particularly Catholic identity in these islands. So it's a great pleasure to introduce uh, Dr. Harris. And the technology worked. I am delighted to open this plenary panel on reading the signs of the times, and I'm cognizant that what I'll have to say this afternoon will be a highly personal perspective on an intensely complex issue. And this is a reading made all the more difficult given the events of the last month, and the sense that while still imperceptible, there are some seismic shifts underway in the landscape of the contemporary Catholic Church. So while somewhat daunted by the brief I've been given, this is the, the organiser's title, I draw comfort from the fact that, as with all of our earthbound efforts to discern the movement of the spirit, we now see through a mirror dimly. And as a historian of contemporary religion, more than an academically trained social scientist, my instinct in addressing these questions is to contrast the past with the present and to look for patterns, for continuity and change across the previous decades. So to do this, I turned firstly to the tablet on the 13th of October 1962, which reproduced, very unusually, an especially illustrated frontispiece to mark the commencement of the Second Vatican Council. As you can see, it's an engraving from the Anglo-Dutch recusant artist, painter and writer, Richard Verstegen, showing the apostolic succession of the popes from St. Peter and the church in council. This illustration, produced in the shadow of the Council of Trent, 
showed a church surrounded and supported by the militant faithful, with its hierarchical Episcopal leadership in the foreground. The accompanying editorial with the leader, Forever Old, Forever New, provides a pertinent example of the preoccupations of the English church on the cusp of the council. As Douglas Woodruff articulated, what sort of change is a true development, a flowering, and what sort of change is a continual deviation, aberration, and falling away? For all of the distance that the post-conciliar pilgrim church has travelled since then, my sense is that the same sorts of questions, though modulated through a quite different hermeneutic, have characterised the deliberations and the disagreements of the 269 synod bishops and one layman meeting in Rome last month. So moving to the present, and using a cartoon, in fact, uh, quite out of its original financial um, crisis context, perhaps we could sacralise it, in fact, by replacing scheme with schema. It seems appropriate to draw attention to Pope Francis's recent address to commemorate the 150th anniversary of the institution of the Synod of the Bishops. Within a speech that developed out a reappreciation of the requirements of a synodal church, there was also present a vision of the church diametrically opposed to that envisaged in the 1962 tablet front cover. As Francis reflected on the 17th of October in, Paul VI, in the Paul VI audience hall, Jesus founded the church by setting at her head the apostolic college in which the apostle Peter is the rock, the one who must confirm his brethren in the faith. But in this church, as an inverted pyramid, the top is located beneath the base. This ecclesiological revisioning, in train since the council and given a thoroughly fresh impetus a fortnight ago, leads me to conclude that while on the face of it, the synod's ambiguous, compromised, forged final report would suggest business as usual, in reality there has been a sea change. This ecclesial reorientation is characterised, as Francis termed it, by sound decentralisation and the reanimation of decades dormant precepts surrounding discernment at the local level, conciliarity and the apostolate of the laity. To unpack the grassroots context into which these theological and ecclesiological trends over 50 years have been received and interpreted, I turn again to the tablet archive for resources to provide a sketch of the English Catholic community of the past with a view to delineating more clearly its present character. Ahead of the landmark visit of Pope, Paul, of Pope John Paul II to Britain in 1982, the tablet ran a series of articles commissioned from prominent Catholics and non-Catholic contributors entitled Five Minutes with the Pope. Lord John Hunt of Tanworth, Secretary to the Cabinet from 1973 to 79, wrote the first piece on the 13th of February 1982, which was intended as, I quote, a general survey of the outlook and situation of Catholics in this country today, which therefore serves as an introduction to the more specialised approach of future pieces. This article itself told the familiar tale of a church set apart, faithful to the legacy of Thomas More, and triumphalist in its claims that, and I quote again, there are some who lapse in this materialist age, but our churches are full, and our congregations are not the nominal Catholics sometimes found in countries with a different history. Putting aside whether these characterizations accurately reflected 1980s realities, the other instalments in the series, and the lay men and women chosen to author them, provide a fascinating portrait of English Catholic hot-button issues nearly two decades after the Council. In surveying the topics then addressed, 
Some profound differences between the church then and now are illuminated, but there are also some extraordinarily striking resemblances to issues which continue to perplex us today. Surveying the 29 contributions in a concluding piece in May 1982, then-editor Tom Burns contended that the collection represents responsible Catholic opinion at many levels in our society and a cross-section of Catholic opinion without special manipulation. To the present-day reader, the pieces on banning the bomb, trade unions and Anglicanism and the crown appear curious choices, indeed quaint period pieces, profoundly inflected by Cold War anxieties, the recent marriage of Charles and Diana, and Thatcherite neoliberalism. The five articles devoted to ecumenism also point to a very different ecclesiological landscape than that today. Nevertheless, reading the short pieces by Dr Jack Dominion on problems of marriage and family life, and Sheila Keefe, a natural um, pastoral congress leader on parental love, the persistence of issues raised at the 1980 Synod on the Family and continued at the Synod just concluded is palpable. As Dominion wrote in a piece that necessarily skated across issues of divorce, contraception and the role of sex in strengthening marital intimacy, he concluded, and I quote, there is a very strong feeling in favour of admission to communion of the remarried and as a means of keeping those estranged from the church as close to Christ as possible. A re-examination of the balance between a continuing commitment to the indulgability of marriage, yet pastoral flexibility and compassion across the range of reasons for marriage failure is something which English Catholics have pressed to have addressed for over 30 years, with consequences for subsequent lapsidation and the failure of socialisation of children, which the two recent Synod questionnaires have unearthed. Equally telling on the broader state of the church is the piece by the sociologist of religion Michael Hornsby-Smith on the cleavage in the English Catholic community between a middle-class activist elite and a working-class grassroots, coupled with alienation from the church by a significant proportion of young people. Caroline Miles' reflection on the failure to give practical effect to the Council's new thinking about the role of the laity in the church resonates with much of Francis's thinking in Evangelium Gaudium. Similarly, John Todd's call for a synod of bishops that has its own life, its own secretariat, and makes its own decisions echoes the debate played out in Rome over the last two years. Finally, Oliver and Ianthi Pratt, again reflecting the legacy of the National Pastoral Congress, wrote about the need for clergy and laity to develop a shared or complementary ministry in which the role of the clergy is that of inspiring and enabling rather than controlling. What is curiously striking in my rereading of this material 30 years on is the overwhelming sense of issues long diagnosed but not dealt with, the kind of difficulties and uncertainties that Francis has urged the church a fortnight ago to study and to confront in the light of faith, but without burying our heads in the sand. While somewhat different in nature, and most importantly in the scope and scale of response, the tablets, tablets somewhat idiosyncratic and mediated survey of English Catholic life in the 1980s can, however, be fruitfully contrasted with the recent, unprecedented depth sounding of contemporary Catholic culture facilitated by the Bishops' Conference. Intended as a preparation for Cardinal Vincent Nichols and Peter, Bishop Peter Doyle as delegates to the Synod, the call, the journey and the mission questionnaire was framed as six questions for reflection in parish groups, and Catholic organisations across the country. 
a summary of responses compiled by, compiled by staff from the Marriage and Family Life Project Office was recently released in September and makes for fascinating reading. While not as wide-ranging uh, wide or open-ended as the 2014 Vatican Coordinated Questionnaire, responses to which have not been made available, this national survey offers a rich qualitative source for a socio-scientific reading of the contemporary church, its diversity and its present preoccupations. Compiled from feedback from 16 dioceses, canvassing the opinions of over 2,750 people on my count, 84% of whom were laity and 53% of whom were over 56 years of age, the survey in effect canvasses the opinion of the generation that lived through the Easter people report and the papal visit and who have remained in the church through the ensuing tumultuous 30 years. The fact that only 6% of the survey respondents were under 35 is a topic to which I'll return later. Running to over 28 pages and teeming with profoundly moving testimony, it's difficult to adequately summarise the report's findings in the time available to me this afternoon. Nevertheless, in my summary of the summary, so here's a methodological warning for the strict social scientists amongst you, I hope to offer a lens into some of the fault lines of, contemporary, of the contemporary Catholic moment. To my mind, three broad issues, um, clusters of issues emerge. The first, marriage, the family and sexuality. The second, the role of the laity. And the third, socialisation in the faith and the lapsed. To my first category. This first cultural marker. If the family is the domestic church, then the report outlines a relational organisation that is highly prized but subject to severe pressures and which often feels unsupported and sometimes estranged from the wider body of Christ. In writings about the joys and hopes of marriage and family life today, across all the responses was a profound respect for and commitment to marriage as a sacrament and descriptions of the intimacy, companionship, respect, trust, commitment and lifelong mutual support possible within shared lives. Most responses differentiated between marriage and family, with one group explicitly exploring the different spiritualities of couples and familial groups, and therefore the different pastoral care they required. Unsurprisingly, there was nevertheless a grounded sense of realism and earthiness that permeated the responses. The sense that marriage is a place for habituation in the virtues of forgiveness, patience and self-sacrifice. Responses noted the need for lifelong learning to adapt to change, yet to move beyond pious and idealised understandings of family life. As one respondent put it, to talk to some married people who understand there's a lot of hatred going on within marriage, as well as love. Respondents expressed the need for support of all families and offered the insight that, I quote, the church may well have more to learn from marriage and family life than to teach. The laity wrote about families beyond the ideal family unit, single parents, families blended through remarriage, same-sex couples and cohabiting couples, who give love and security to children and may indeed be happier than more traditional family units. In answer to questions about the struggles and fears of marriage and family life today, many wrote about intense economic difficulties and insecurity the impact of both parents working on time with their children and nourishment of their relationship, and many of the responses dealt with the burden of caring responsibilities for older members of the family. Within the summary report, at least, there was minimal discussion 
of contraception, teaching on sexuality and abortion, women within the church, and the vocation to the single life. Indeed, ACTA, who, con who contributed 342 responses to the questionnaire, has criticised the summary on these counts. But, for example, on women's role within the church and the question of women's ordination, there were at least a handful of references given throughout. From Catholic cartoonist and pugwash creator John Ryan's wry take on Vatican auspice discussions of the issue in 1973, which I've given you, through to a recent cartoon in Le Monde, I think there is a growing sense amongst the laity that gender issues can no longer be dodged, bound up as they are with broader ecclesiological issues about the apostolate of the laity. The presence of 32 female observers and 42 laymen, also non-voting, at the synod, whilst a start, does not constitute the inverted pyramid that Francis has advocated. Which brings me to a strong current within the English Catholic questionnaire on the place of the laity within the church. As the report itself summarises, one of the threads in many of the diocesan responses is the exhortation to promote the equality, dignity and vocation of all the baptised as the root vocation from which all other callings in, in life spring, including the call to married life. Respondents wrote of the danger of a disconnect between bishops and laity, with the need to take steps to make our church less clerical. Others wrote in punchy terms about the institution of the Catholic Church, which seems at times to be more concerned about promoting its authority than serving and supporting the laity. Or the need for more consultation of and respect of the laity, including women's views being heard and respected. Not only are these perspectives at a fundamental level undergirded and endorsed by the 1965 decree on the apostolate of the laity, they echo perspectives articulated in the tablet in 1982 about the lack of reception and application of this conciliar precept. With the explicit and fulsome encouragement of Evangelium Gaudium and Laudato Si, which has urged all baptised Christians to a fresh acknowledgement of their vocation to evangelisation and inauguration of the kingdom, this also seems to be a sign of the times that can no longer be ignored. So to my last marker. Not least if we turn to our third and final marker of the contemporary Catholic Church gleaned from the questionnaire, the deep sense of sadness and failure communicated by many respondents that while they've had some success in passing on faith, this is not reflected in mass attendance. Many wrote in moving terms that they, like many others, did our best to hand on the faith but my child does not now believe in God and does not attend church. To the younger generation, the Catholic Church is a medieval irrelevance. Others spoke about giving a grounding in basic Christian behaviour or Catholic values as deeply embedded or their children as very caring and tolerant of Christianity without feeling they have to prove this in a church every week. Difficulties with the church featured heavily in these discussions, including its perception as misogynistic, controlling and self-opinionated, I'm quoting, or irrelevant, even uncaring and alien. A section of the report was also devoted under the heading The Plight of Those Who Are Divorced and Remarried to discussing the pain and suffering caused by denial of the sacraments and the disturbing and damaging effect on their children. Lapsidation from the church did not feature in the tablet's series of soundings of the laity in 1982, though there were signs of unsettled retention patterns in the post-war church and a public exodus in the wake of the church's spiritual 68. Drawing upon recent research of my colleague Dr Stephen Bullivant from St Mary's University on Catholic disaffiliation, 
There is an estimated four to five million Britons brought up Catholic who no longer practice, and many of whom no longer consider themselves Catholic. Based on this data, many in this cohort are male under 30. Extensive analysis of data over the 20th century shows that British Catholics have a current retention rate of around 62% of those raised Catholic, which compares to 50% of Anglicans and 33% of Baptists and Methodists. So there's some interesting um, material for unpacking there. Yet perhaps the most surprising finding of this research, which may perhaps be given greater substance in the laudable initiative of the Share Your Story, a survey of non-practicing Catholics recently launched by the Diocese of Portsmouth, the lowest level of affiliation and practice according to the British Social Attitudes Survey data on which this study is based is amongst the middle-aged, those between 40 and 59 years. The youngest cohorts, while numerically smaller of course, have the same retention rates, though not the frequency of practice rates, as those over 59 years. Immigration and extra-ecclesial initiatives such as World Youth Day may be factors at play in this trend. So looking across the contemporary Catholic scene, there are seeds of hope as well as unmistakable signals for, prayer, for prayerful discernment and concerted action for the British Church called to renewal, evangelisation and a rediscovery of the joy of the gospel. Thank you. Our next speaker is a theologian, uh, Professor Tina Beatty from Roehampton University, who is known, I'm sure, to many, if not all of you, uh, the director of the Dig. Pardon me. Tina Beatty is our next speaker um, the, uh, from Roehampton University, and known, I think, to probably all of you as the director of the Digby Stewart Research Centre and uh, uh, for Religion Society and Human Flourishing, uh, and that university and. A lot of uh, Tina's work is focused on Catholic theology and contemporary culture, particularly in the areas of gender and sexuality, uh, women, Marian theology. She's done significant work on, on Aquinas uh, and the latest, her latest research monograph, Theology After Postmodernity, uh, published in um, uh, 2013 by OUP. But her, more recently, she's been very active in... Um, uh, Catholic women speak in making sure that some more female participation was brought together to feed into the recent synod, and I'm sure she'll have much to say to us today. Tina. Thank you, and it's a great pleasure and privilege to be invited to address this gathering and to see so many people here today. So I was asked to speak on reading the contemporary Catholic cultural moment on the subject of family matters from a theological perspective. In the final report of the recent Synod on the Family, three issues signify the emergence of new cultural norms that challenge the Catholic understanding of marriage and the family. They are divorce and remarriage, same-sex relationships and the role of women. I'm speaking about the role of women on Wednesday, so today I'm going to focus on changing family and sexual relationships. Now, uh, Janet mentioned the project that I sort of oversaw for the Synod on the Family. This involved bringing together at very short notice 
44 Catholic women contributors to produce a book published by Paulist Press in the space of a little under two months, which we finally managed after much bargaining and much naysaying to get into the Synod Hall. There were 300 copies of that book given out at the Synod on a table given to us by Libraria Editrice Vaticana after Cardinal Baldessari's office said you can't bring that book in, we already have too much to read. They might all be under Cardinal Muller's desk, but the books went wherever they went. Now, one of the essays in that book, which particularly moves me, um, they're all very short essays because we wanted the cardinals and bishops to read them. So we, we filleted quite a lot of much longer essays to include them in there. But one essay that particularly moves me is by Claire Watkins, who many of you know. And it's an essay called The Love That Crosses Lines, The Grace Transgressions of Family Life. And it's a beautifully nuanced reflection on the paradoxes faced by Catholic parents seeking to balance respect for church teaching sorry, for church teaching with the changing values by which our children live their lives. And Watkins argues that church teaching needs to be shaped and informed by the expertise that comes from living out the complex and muddled realities of family relationships. So she writes, for example, The maternal heart knows that it's truly painful to see one's children's marriages break down or to see them struggling with sexual identity and their faith. And, (coughs) excuse me, it is humanly... Sorry, I'm just going to get some water. Thank you. And it is humanly joyful to see their brokenness transformed by the love of a new spouse or a committed partner. The maternal heart is able to carry a certain bewilderment, resonant with the Marian pondering heart of Luke 2, in which a faithful belief in the indissolubility of marriage goes hand in hand with a delighted embrace of the second wife, the stepfamily, and all the complexity of blended families. Her faith, as such, hasn't changed. The rule still speaks of something profound and deeply truthful. But in her receiving of the son's male partner, she discovers with a gasp the extraordinary power of a love that can cross lines and be made greater and stronger in that journey. It's not that we Catholic parents disagree simply with church teaching. It's rather that the mysterious love we practice as parents has compelled us into crossing the line. And in these moments of transgression, we have experienced a profundity of compassion, grace and peace. That says just about everything I could hope to say about what a Catholic wisdom for our times might look like in the context of parenthood and families. In particular, the suggestion that revelatory insights are sometimes discovered through transgression invites us to go beyond the stereotypes and the status quo that have so dominated the modern Catholic understanding of the family to a more gospel-focused account of where wisdom is to be found. The Holy Family is deeply transgressive. A virgin mother, a foster father, and an only child who ends up on the wrong side of the law. (laughs) 
If we add to that medieval legends about the three marriages of St. Anne, mother of the Virgin and God's grandmother, we end up with something remarkably close to the complex realities of families across cultures and contexts. The Samaritan woman at the well had had five husbands and was living with a man she wasn't married to, and yet it was to her that Jesus confided the privileged insight that he is the Messiah. When Jesus' mother and brothers come looking for him, he responds by asking, Who are my mother and my brothers? Then, Mark's Gospel tells us, he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my mother and brother and sister. I love the fact that Jesus there actually did use inclusive language. (laughs) We don't even need to play with the translation. These are transgressive moments in terms of kinship and blood ties that have something to say to us today. Just as in the story of the Good Samaritan, Jesus redefines the concept of the neighbour. My neighbour is the person nearest to me in need. So in these exchanges, Jesus redefines the concept of the family. The family of Christ is neither the nuclear family of the modern social order, nor is it the more traditional and enduring kinship of blood, race, nation and tribe, which still today generates unspeakable violence and rivalry. It's not the Oedipal relationship described by Freud, where the paterfamilias constitutes a form of masked authoritarian violence at the heart of marital and parental relationships. The family of Jesus is a family of love and fidelity, not of law and kinship, made up of the people gathered in a circle around him, These are his brothers and sisters and mothers. Note there is no father. This family share the same father in heaven and have no father on earth. Jesus says, do not call anyone on earth father, for you have one father and he is in heaven. This family is recognized by its love for God the Father, revealed in the person of Christ through the maternal love of the church. This recognition of Christ is discovered in the face of the vulnerable other, the hungry, the thirsty, the stranger, the naked, the sick, the prisoner, the refugee, the homeless, the victim of power in all its many and brutal manifestations, symbolised to be sure but not confined to the newborn child. So what might we learn from that today? Perhaps we ought to pause to ask ourselves, what is a family anyway? What's its purpose and what's its vocation? And I want to suggest that here, the weaving together of natural law and scripture, of reason and revelation, has much to offer if we bring to our understanding of natural law a more nuanced approach than has been the case in its modern interpretations. Natural law in its medieval interpretations is not a set of unbreakable rules handed down from on high by God. That's the kind of thinking that informs Humana Vitae, for example, and much other modern church teaching, but it's a distortion of the earlier tradition. Natural law for Thomas Aquinas and his contemporaries was more about a method of prayerful reasoning than about a book of rules. It explains the way in which we discern goodness and meaning through contemplation of our sensory experiences of the world around us, and it's always marked by the cultures and languages we inhabit. It enables us to understand and direct our desire 
for the good things of the world towards their creator in order to live harmonious and balanced lives. From this perspective, the transgressive nature of the Christian family is not simply a rejection of the natural family, and by natural here I actually mean cultural. When church teaching today speaks of the natural family, it speaks as if there has only ever been one model of family, that which is endorsed through blessed Pope John Paul II's somewhat naive and literalist interpretation of Genesis 2 in his catechesis on the book of Genesis, and much elaborated by the theology of the body movement. This basically suggests that the nuclear family of the modern capitalist state was intended by God in the beginning through the one flesh union of Adam and Eve. And in a longer paper, I'd say why I think we need to refocus that one flesh union on Christ and the church in a way which would have considerable implications for the sacramental significance of the female flesh. But from a natural law perspective, a natural family is whatever a particular culture deems normal in the context of its values and institutions, in such a way that the family forms part of the networks of support, solidarity and more or less just living, which provide a context in which humans can flourish. So in Africa, the natural family is polygamous, and in traditional societies that has functioned to provide social support to widows and orphans, for example. In Islam, polygamous relationships are carefully regulated by the Quran and the Hadith in terms of the husband's capacity to provide for his wives and children. And here too, polygamy serves many of the functions that until recently were provided by the modern welfare state before its current dismantling. In medieval society, the feudal family served much the same purpose. In the Catholic tradition, religious communities of celibate men and women have often functioned in place of families, and still today many understand their relationships and responsibilities in those terms. In modern Western society, heavily influenced by the combined effects of Christianity and secular individualism, the nuclear family has come to seem normal and therefore natural until very recently, but that model is breaking down. And this is where the call to transgressive love comes into play. When we inhabit a culture of more or less shared values and more or less accepted norms, the natural law tradition would suggest that the church should seek to sustain and work within existing institutions, laws and structures to ensure that they are just and orientated towards human flourishing in both its individual and collective contexts bearing in mind that we are, as Aristotle and Thomas Aquinas say, social animals. However, I want to pick up on an important insight by Catholic ethicist Lisa Sol Cahill that marriage is not essential to what we mean by family, and this is another of the essays in the book. Cahill observes that families may or may not include marriage, but what they always involve are intergenerational parent-child relationships extended into kinship networks. So, as has become clear in recent discussions about Catholic families, particularly in the Synod, even in the Church there are many different models. Single parents, blended families formed through divorce and remarriage, families of orphaned children brought up by grandmothers across much of sub-Saharan Africa. 
to cling to the model of the nuclear family and to claim that this has divine legitimation through a problematic reading of Genesis is actually to fail to acknowledge the love and security that diverse families seek to provide, often in traumatic and impoverished conditions. What does the child of a single mother feel when he or she hears that the children need a father and a, that children need a father and a mother repeatedly reinforced by the Catholic hierarchy? What do the children of divorced Catholics feel when they see their parents torn between loyalty to church teaching and the desire to do better next time, forming new relationships of love in which new family groupings can emerge? What does a grandmother feel when battling heroically against unthinkable odds to bring up her her grandchildren? She hears the church pointing to a model that is so remote and unattainable in terms of her own culture and context. Consider, for example, the experience of Anna, a 47-year-old Ugandan widow and mother of seven children who is living with HIV and also caring for her late sister's three children. Anna says, I was given land by my late husband's family, but now as a widow the land has been grabbed away from me. I now depend on only one patch of land where I can grow food. That's what is hurting my life so much. And also, someone like me who is living with HIV, all the time you worry about the education of your children. At least none of them is infected because it seems I got the virus the time I conceived my last child. What prevents me from living well is taking care of orphans without anyone helping me. Because I am taking care of orphans of two families, my brother-in-law killed my sister and he also shot himself. He was a soldier and I don't know why he did that. So I am suffering with their children together with mine. I am the one educating them, yet I am also a widow. All the time I do not find happiness in my family and I am living with HIV. Anna's story reminds us that the family can be a place of unspeakable violence in the murder of her sister and the suicide of her brother-in-law, distorted, of course, by war. The brother-in-law was a soldier. It can feel like a world of unrelenting responsibility, loss and sorrow, and it can also evoke the most sublime, enduring and hidden commitments to love. To privilege the modern middle-class nuclear family over these living realities of domestic life is to privilege the powerful over the weak, the wealthy over the poor. It's to live out a value system that is the opposite of the upside-down world of the Magnificat and, indeed, of the theology of Pope Francis. The family, then, is surely any domestic grouping in which love struggles to express itself in order to provide nurture and care for those who cannot care for themselves. So where does marriage fit into this? You know, as we survey the wreckage of the sexual revolution, I find myself appreciating ever more deeply the wisdom at the heart of the Christian understanding of marriage. The idea that we humans flourish as sexual beings in the context of committed, lifelong relationships of mutual love, respect and freedom is one of the most beautiful visions that Christianity has given to the world. And let's be clear that it is a Christian vision. I think that's why so many African Catholics, not just bishops, but many women I've met as well, are opposed to divorce and remarriage. And we need to hold these cultural tensions somehow in the way that I think the Synod in the end succeeded in doing. 
In cultures still dominated by patriarchal values, divorce can function primarily as a let-out clause for faithless men, as indeed it seemed to do in the time of Jesus. The Christian understanding of marriage sees sex in the context of a much wider vision of the integrated life of virtue, through which we are called as Christians to flourish in our desire and our love, and when necessary to make sometimes radical sacrifices as part of that flourishing. Our sexual relationships, like every other form of human interaction and relationship, are gradually purged of their violent and exploitative aspects through the practice of disciplined love. Listening to young women telling their stories, I've just come back from the States and I had a chance to speak to quite a few young women students and their tutors and I was really quite shocked by the stories I heard of hooking up, of having to be constantly available for sex so that even a preliminary date is no longer a prerequisite for men's expectations of sex to follow because they have an app where if this girl says no, there will be a girl within a 10-minute radius who's willing to say yes. Um, I think we can and should say in this context why the Christian model of marriage has something positive to offer, probably not instead of, but through and beyond these sexual experiments and trauma, not least in its insistence that the man must practice the same restraint and virtue as the woman, in theory, if not always in practice, in the historical tradition. I would also argue that if couples want children, then they should marry, with the caveat that marriage is best, but lots of other ways of raising children are just as good. But what of same-sex relationships? What of those for whom both celibacy and heterosexual marriage are out of the question, or can only be adopted at great cost to the self and others, and not a creative cost that is a vocation to Christ? Those who seek a more dynamic approach to doctrinal development than we've seen in the last few decades should take heart from just how far the church has in fact shifted on same-sex relations. I doubt if we'll ever again, I hope we will never again see any reference to intrinsic evil or intrinsically disordered desire with regard to homosexuality in future church teaching documents. Now, I also respect and might still be persuaded by the views of those who say the church needs to affirm the loving possibilities of same-sex relationships, but that marriage should be exclusively heterosexual. This is a very complex question, and it's a question where um, a significant majority of Catholics would agree that marriage is heterosexual while supporting some form of positive affirmation for same-sex relations. Nevertheless, after much study and reflection, I came to the conclusion a few years ago that same-sex marriage is not only sacramentally justifiable, but might even be what the Holy Spirit is offering to the Church as a way of reinvigorating the beauty of the Christian understanding of marriage at a time when it's under siege from so many directions. Instead of the somewhat perplexing fear that same-sex marriage will undermine the sacrament of marriage, and I have never understood quite what that suggests. It could surely be an opportunity for the church to affirm its teaching on marriage. It can't simply be a question of openness to procreation, for if that were the case, then marriage should be refused to all postmenopausal women. But as soon as we grant that a non-procreative marriage 
can still be a sacramental expression of Christ's love for the church in the dignity, love, freedom and commitment of each of the partners for the other, it's hard to see why that precludes same-sex couples. In other words, rather than its pelvically focused anxiety about what kind of sex makes a relationship good, the church could, in my view, far more meaningfully ask what kind of a relationship makes sex good. I believe we've embarked upon that path, and the recent Synod on the Family gives much room for hope. And a big however to everything I've said. Until women are fully incorporated into the community of theological discernment and pastoral guidance, our view of sex, marriage and the family will continue to be blocked by that unacknowledged elephant in the room. <laughs>